Welcome to the Breaks and Joins podcast. I'm Sue Mayo and I'm working on a project about repair, repair of our stuff, ourselves and our communities. And in each episode, we meet somebody who's really deeply involved somehow in repair of all kinds. Really hope you enjoy the podcast. Make sure you like and subscribe and share it with your friends. My name is Chuck Blue Lowry, and I am a filmmaker working on the project. I will be editing all of the podcasts. The podcasts have been recorded in line with social distancing measures. So if you do hear the occasional background noise, like a dog barking or a dodgy internet connection, it's all just part of the recording from home setup. Regardless of that, we have some fantastic conversations in store for you, and we really hope you enjoy the podcast. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Breaks and Joins podcast. And I'm really delighted that we've got Gail Babb and Alex Evans with us today. Gail is a theatre maker. She works in devising new work and in participatory arts, and she leads the Masters in Applied Theatre at Goldsmiths. Alex is an artist, a director and a facilitator. He works with children and young people and in communities, and he's the artistic director of Kazoom Arts a creative arts organisation based in Tower Hamlets. And it's lovely to see you. I think you met each other at Hull. Is that correct? We did. We met on the first day of a drama degree of our of our BA in Hull at age 18. A very long time ago. I know. It's amazing, isn't it? That is amazing. Mm. And you've got quite a strong friendship group, haven't you, from that time? Yeah, there's a, there's a network of us that, that came out of the same drama training and have kind of gone into all sorts of different disciplines in different areas across the arts. So some of us still working in participatory arts, others moving into education sector. Um, So it's really great to see that kind of, you know, that initial spark of interest at the age of 18, actually what it can become over time. Yeah. I I wonder if it's stronger sometimes with courses like drama that, you get these fantastic friendship groups because the work is so much about relationship and you've often had to do loads of group work. So mm. I, I imagine it's stronger than it is in something like a law degree where you sit in a lecture theatre together, but you don't necessarily work together. Do you think that does make a difference? I think so. When I think about friends that I know who've done other courses, they still have really tight and deep friendships with people they met at university, but they might not be the people who were on the course with them. They might be people they've met in halls or people they've met through the union. So, yeah, I think there's something really specific about the collaborative nature of drama as a subject. Yeah. Yeah. We brought the two of you together today because you've both done specific pieces of work and also worked in a more kind of general way around this quite tricky word, trauma. So I I want to start with you, Gail, because you worked for quite a long time with the artist Heather Agyapong on a piece called The Body Remembers which I was privileged to come and see when it uh, performed at Battersea Arts Centre. And I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit more about what it was and what the starting point for it was. Yeah, so The Body Remembers was about how trauma lives in the body, specifically for Black British women. And we were more interested in the process of healing and recovery than we are in the sort of, in the trauma itself. So about 
listening to our body, figuring out what it is saying, what what we need and um, how we can move forward with that. So I think the process involved collecting experiences from a wider group of women. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, it did. So um, Heather, Heather Ajipong, who's the lead artist on the process, and Dawn Estefan, who's a psychotherapist who was attached to um, the project, interviewed 20 Black British women in different stages of recovery from trauma about how trauma showed up in the body and what they noticed, about what their body was telling them, um, and about how they how they helped themselves feel well. Um, and sort of about that healing process. So they had two stages, actually. So everyone was interviewed once by Heather and Dawn. And then Imogen Knight, who was our movement director, ran short workshops with them. So the three of them went back um, and worked one-on-one with um, all of these women to see what can be found, what can be communicated in moving physically rather than talking verbally. And then we had this just rich testimonies of these 20 women um, recorded transcripts that we then used to use as another form of communication in the piece that we created. So um, all of those voices spoke at different points uh, during the piece we created, which was about 45 minutes long, just a, a short piece about embodied trauma. And I'm really interested in my own reaction in a way to the word trauma and mm. realising that I don't have a when I say I don't have a sense of what that might mean although I I I think of it as meaning really serious damage being done to a person in their psyche in their self how did you begin that conversation with women when it's Mm -hmm. such a kind of deep area that you're talking about it's a big word it's a big word and I mean maybe Alex will do better than I in defining the boundaries and the parameters of it but for me, I think there are lots of different forms of trauma um, that people are experiencing, people have experienced, that people live with. The way that I am, at least currently in this moment, thinking about it is that it's simply it's harm. It's harm. It can be an experience, an event that has harmed. It can be something that has happened to a group of people. It can be something that's happened to one person. It can be something that's happened to generations and that's been passed on. So, yeah, it can be inherited. I mean, it can be experienced in many ways. Um, I wasn't there for the very beginning, beginnings of those conversations with the women. So I don't know how Dawn and Heather approached it in the room. But there was a call out specifically for people with experience, with lived experience of trauma. Um, And then people self-selected people said, yeah, I'd actually I'd like to sit down and talk to you about that. One thing that's really important, both in the process of interviewing the women and in the piece that we created, was that the actual act of harm was never our focus. We didn't ask at any stage the women what had happened to them or what they were carrying with them. It was more, how are you living with that experience? How is that experience showing up? And that's, you know, what we asked of ourselves as makers as we're going through. How is How are our experiences of harm? How are our experiences of trauma showing up? Um, What do we want to say about them? What do we know about them? What can we listen to that might give us a little bit more intelligence on on what that means? What does listening to other people's experiences of intelligences around um, trauma and harm, what does that do to us in turn? Yeah, that's great. I think that's really, really helpful. And it reminds me of a conversation that I had on Friday with a woman who's an asylum seeker and was talking about 
not re-traumatizing herself through sharing her narrative, but wanting to be seen and wanting to be noticed and recognized for who she was and how interesting that was. I think interesting is too weak a word, but what a challenge that was when what she was not prepared to do was to continually tell the story mm. of her trauma. Yeah, so that really rings a bell with me. That's great. I, I we'll leave that for now, Gail, but we're going to come back across to that. Thank you so much. So, Alex, in Kazoom, you do a training, which you do for people outside the company, but also for artists who work with you in trauma-informed practice. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what that is. Yeah, of course. I'd be happy to. Um so as an organization we've been working towards a trauma-informed uh, approach for the last four years we started the journey in 2018 something that we believe inside the organization is never going to be a finished or completed piece of work uh, it will constantly evolve as we do in order for us as an organization to achieve trauma-informed perspective and ways of working not only does everybody inside the staff team need to know about the impact of trauma and traumatic stress, we also have to make sure that our delivery teams, the people that are doing the fantastic creative work of the organisation, uh, have a really embodied sense of that, that our trustees who are stewarding the organisation at an operational and a strategic level have a really strong working understanding of how trauma might be manifesting and held inside the organisation. So it really started at the internal developmental needs of the organisation. And, and through the delivery of that, we realised actually we need to be a part of a system that is also trauma-informed. And so therefore we started uh, to kind of offer it out a bit wider, initially to other organisations, uh, particularly with a focus upon participatory arts organisations and smaller uh, charitable organisations, because we understood that there's very little comprehensive training that is offered around this with a specific focus on creativity and young people. You know, we're working in the participatory arts sector, which is traditionally underfunded and with many, many really diverse career routes into working in this space. So it felt like this would be a comprehensive thing to offer out and an opportunity really you know transparently as a charity to earn some income you know some unrestricted income to the organization to keep us going and then it was during the pandemic when we understood that this was going to be a particularly um, intense uh, overwhelming uncertain period of time you know it would be interesting to explore our duty to freelance practitioners that we weren't necessarily working with and offer an affordable training option so we deliver it over two three and a half hour sessions for practitioners and it seems like it's doing what we want it to do which is just to really raise awareness and then from that, you know, we've been able to kind of reach some sort of more national, you know, on a national scale and, and larger organisations uh, to do kind of consultancy work. So it's become a bit of a lifeline for the organisation, to be honest, um, and a really a piece of work that we're really incredibly proud of delivering. And it sounds like it's come at a time when it's really needed, that it's really met a need. And I think it's so interesting thinking about the pandemic and the way a kind of lid came off stuff that was hidden. Yeah. Uh, and you could see that people who were being affected already by certain situations were doubly affected in that time. Yeah. And things became more acute. I did a half day of training in trauma informed practice. And the word that sticks in my mind is amygdala. 
<laughs> so I I did learn more than that, definitely. But tell what's the amygdala? What's the amygdala? Yes. Well, if it's stuck in your mind, I would hope that you'd be able to tell so me. So it's about your it's about your brain. So there are actual changes. This is the okay. I'll I'll be a bit bolder about what I've retained from the training. Good. But there are actual physical changes in the brain due to trauma. So yes. we're not just talking about a kind of sensed, uh, a bruising that can be recovered from, but actual physical changes, particularly when you're talking about children and young people, and that that's going to then affect absolutely how they behave in the future. Yes, so does, absolutely. Did I do okay? <laughs> oh, gold star. <laughs> absolutely. We can, we can talk about the, the impact of trauma in so many different ways, but if we're interested in developmental trauma, which would be uh, life experiences that happen to a young person at a specific ages and stages of their life, um, we can look towards the impact of the stress of those experiences having the capacity to change the physiology of the body. It can alter and change the nervous system, uh, the endocrine system, the respiratory system, the circulatory system can be impacted by the stress, the toxic stress of the response to events that are outside of our control. So when we're looking at the brain, uh, there are certain parts of the brain which are really vital and necessary parts that are there to protect us and to keep us alive and to keep us mobilizing away from the danger or in really extreme cases to support us to shut down from that threat because that threat is too big for us to respond to. And the amygdala is a core part of that survival capacity. So the amygdala is there really to process uh, the cortisol. But what can happen is that that amygdala can become highly sensitized to specific stimuli that are coming into the body and being received through the body. So I was reading just the other week about the, they believe that the amygdala actually shrinks. It reduces in surface areas because it becomes less tolerant uh, to the stimulus that are around it. So you'd see a kind of a shrunken amygdala in, in soldiers who have returned from fighting active duty in the same way that you would see a shrunken amygdala in the brains of children who have experienced domestic violence and abuse. It's the same parts of the brain that are activated, that threat stress response system. We can think about the amygdala in terms of trauma, but we can also just think about all of our amygdalas and how do our amygdalas behave and how are we, how have we been sensitized to the environment around us? It doesn't have to be through trauma, it is just through the art of living that we become sensitized to our environments. Yeah. And I can imagine that if anything in your life exposes you repeatedly to certain things, even if they're not, as it were, serious things in inverted commas, then that would have an, quite an impact on you because you'd really develop a response to those. Mm. Mm. I'm going to come back to Gail now because we had been talking a bit earlier and I'd love to hear more about it, about the process of working together with Heather and the team of people you're working with and how your subject matter affected the way you worked. You know, what considerations you had for ways of working. I think the first thing to say is that the team, the individuals on the team, or the, the three co-creators, so that's me, Heather Rajapong and Imogen Knight, are inherently collaborative and I think in all of our practices we try and hold care at the centre 
um, what our subject matter did for us was give us permission to to do more than try to really center care for ourselves and each other in the process to find structures I don't know that structures is the right word to find the opposite of structure probably to find flexibilities um, that allowed us to make the work the way that we needed to so we obviously we had a time to turn up to rehearsals and to R&D and we had a time that we expected to be there until but with an understanding that we all have multiple things going on in our lives and it's not always possible to be ready sharp let's start and go running at 10 intensively let's have a soft start let's at 10 ish we're going to be sitting down and talking about how we are talking about how we're approaching the work today talking about what's left with us from the last time we were together I think we were talking about the possibility of re-traumatizing earlier and we were really keen to make sure that we were taking care of ourselves in the process of making it and that we took care of our audiences in the process of presenting it. It was about allowing for flexibility for us to to do what we needed to do in the ways that we needed to do it. So if we needed to um, have longer breaks, we could absolutely do that. If we needed to um, finish early, if we needed actually for it just to be me and Heather for a while, then that was fine. We had Dawn, the psychotherapist who was involved in the early interviews, so that actually if Heather needed um, a space to talk to somebody outside of the making room at any point, both in the rehearsal process, but also in the tour that we did, um, then she had that space and time. Yeah, we did a lot of talking. We did a lot of checking in on each other. Yeah, I think that's probably a, about as articulate as I can be about it, mm-hmm. because there was nothing, there was no formal process created that said, this is how we're going to do it. We just, we felt it out. We did what felt right for us as individuals and as a collective as we went. Mm-hmm. And that shifted and changed. And we felt tensions at points when you get to that to that stage of a theatre process when you're suddenly in tech rehearsals. And tech rehearsals, are used. we're used to them feeling a certain way. We're used to them being 12-hour days. We're used to them feeling high-pressured and, and stressful and long. And actually there's, I do, yeah, I remember a couple of moments of tension where we could feel the process was pulling itself. I don't know who was pulling the process, but the process felt like it was sliding into the default ways that we often work in theatre. And then we were resisting and pulling that back to go, actually, no, there's there's a different way of working that we've created here. How do we still provide space around it? And we can absolutely um, look after each other while we work out how those three projectors all present the same image and with the same colouring at the same time, you know. It, that is really countercultural to the way so much theatre making works, where people accept a level of stress and tension and shouting and whatever it's not just about people accepting that that might be part of it unfortunately but fully expecting it and possibly even thinking they're not really working if a very stressful very time pressured atmosphere isn't dominating everything that they do and Mm. I I think it's so interesting that you actively sort it out but also let the process lead you in a way and when we chatted before the podcast, you used the phrase about care, that it's not just any kind of care, it's deep political care. Yeah. And I don't know, can you say a bit more about that phrase? Because that really struck me. I think that it's about an underpinning. So I'm I'm really aware that kindness is a is a word that is 
has been being used for a while and you hear it around maybe for the last five years people have been talking about kindness all we need is to be kind to each other and some people have been talking about radical kindness and I'm not sure what I'm not sure what that means and I think there's a there's something in it that I detect which is just well if we're just nice to each other then it will be fine and none of that takes any account of structural um, systems of power because uh, it's not actually that if the individuals are nice to each other then everything's fine so for me when I'm talking about a deep politically underpinned care then it's care for each other with an, a real awareness of the structures that we're operating in I'm talking about big structures of racism and and fascism and all of those sorts of things of capitalism but I'm also talking about the smaller structures and systems within theatre for example that it doesn't feel like you're working unless we're doing a six day 12 hours a day week where in reality like who who does their best work in that environment very few people and I had a physical reaction when you were when you were describing all the tech things and, you know, and intense hours and shouting and shouting, just shouting has never been a thing that's worked for me. Um, and I don't think it's a thing that's worked for anyone, but it's it's like it's definitely something that has to be a hardline boundary um, outside of the room. So, yeah, care for the individuals that is rooted in an awareness of the systems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And as we have gone through both recording the podcast but also the the creative project that breaks and joins is we have encountered from time to time a kind of question mark about the word repair and interestingly you know there's a lot of understanding of particularly in the physical world of repair the satisfaction of mending something of rescuing of not throwing it away of having the ingenuity to go actually what if we just did that with it? Oh, it can still work. That kind of real sense of reclaiming, but also what we've encountered in ourselves and in other people is people saying, you, you can't just fix things. You know, that's not the answer. You can't, but to be really careful about any idea that rather like you were describing about kindness, uh, that if we're all kind, that's a, then it'll be okay. And uh, that repair is maybe ongoing. Alex, like you were saying about, the trauma-informed practice within Kazoom, that it's an ongoing piece of work. It's going to be a developmental, ongoing piece of work. And I'd be really interested to hear from either of you, really, whoever wants to jump in about whether you have a reaction to this idea of repair and mending, whether it seems to have a place. Neither of you have used it. And Gail, you did use the word healing, which might be a bit related, but I'm just curious about whether you have any response to it. I respond to the word repair actually quite positively in terms of I've been thinking about the way that we repair relationships when damage or harm has been caused and how often it's it's really not a skill that is modelled to us. You kind of end up with these very dramatic ruptures in relationships where you, you get your one chance um, and, and very little opportunities to actually do that constructive repair. I kind of respond quite positively to this idea of repair, repair, to, you know, for something that was whole to bring back together. Mm -hmm. um, actually, I think that there's a real place for that uh, within organisations or where people are working in under high stress, intense pressure. The skill of repair cannot be underestimated. But then, you know, 
sometimes there also are those ruptures of this thing has broken and it needed to break in order for something new to emerge. And so I'm also holding that as well. You know, if, if we all went around repairing everything all the time, you know, what I don't know, I don't know what that would look like. I don't have a model for that. Um, it might be lovely, actually. <laughs> it might be really nice. <laughs> It's funny. It's 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 really interesting listening to you talk because I think, in terms of whether everything can and should be repaired, my first instinct is no. Not everything can be repaired. Not everything should be repaired. Exactly because as you're as you're saying, when things break, then then room is left, space is left. We learn something when things break. Things don't break for no reason. And in the space that's, that we go, oh, now I understand that that's how that works, or that's how that got broken. We get to create something new. We get to imagine new ways of working. So I'm quite excited about that. And the idea of, of constant repair, there's something in it that feels like the, if everything is always repaired, that feels like there's no forward movement because we're always just keeping things as they are. And when they shatter, we put them back together so that it remains, so that we remain in place. But equally, when I think about relationships or when you were talking about relationships, it's interesting to hear a friend of mine um, talking about the importance of repairing relationships, because I think that in relationships, harm is damage is done, is what you said earlier. And that's often true. And although there are, you know, I don't think we've ever had a big rupture uh, between us, but there are little things that happen all the time. And in our friendship, too, where you're just like, oh, that didn't work for me. And we absolutely are in a, a like have a beautiful friendship where we can go, let's let's just pause and just go, what was that? And how does that work? And so I think we're I think repairing as a as a as a practice of friendship, I really value and I'm really used to. And that's what we do. And I've got a couple of other relationships that that's a really important part of as well. So, yeah, I guess those are my responses to to repair. Mm, I think that I love that phrase repairing as a practice of friendship. We, we've learned so much in the project from the language of physical repair. The big one for us came right at the beginning, really, of the project, working with the textile artist, Rose Sinclair, who just said to us, well, the mend must always be much bigger than the tear, mm. which for me is the most extraordinary piece of life advice that you don't you can't just attend to the tear what's around it, what's all around it. So the mend she was literally just talking about your the knee of your jeans <laughs> and then we also spoke to another textile repairer molly martin and she was talking about using a japanese technique called sashiko where you then do tiny stitches right across the the tear and the patch and she said the patch isn't the repair your stitches are the repair in this technique it's not the patch that's the repair it's the stitches and somehow that image really seems to me to sum up exactly what you were just saying Gail about the practice of repair mm. within friendship it's the stitches it's not the patch it's the stitches mm. um but you you also spoke about the need to kind of keep things open sometimes to say this is this is broken this is wounded or something that you can't necessarily go back from that you have to accept and our our question to everybody can everything be mended i've been thinking about this all week and i really wanted to be able to say yes but i can't 
and I was thinking about it and I was thinking, okay, well, why do I want, why do I have a drive, you know, for this kind of hopeful possibility that everything can be mended? And I, I want that to be true, but I don't think something should be mended. I think that some things are so inherently flawed uh, and broken and not working that actually there needs to be uh, a reinvention and a reimagining and an evolution of of that thing. And I was thinking, you know, I'd really like to say that, you know, everything can be mended. But, you know, if I look at, you know, patriarchal structures or, or capitalism or systems of uh, racial hierarchy and racism, you know, uh, the, these are these are structures, social constructs, which have become so pervasive in, and so damaging in our societies that with a new model needs to be created. It feels in this present moment, living in this day and age, that it is. It feels at times it is beyond repair, and by you know having all of us wonderful, well-intentioned people saying, "Oh, but we can through kindness, and we can through hopefulness," and like you know. Let's repair all relationships. Are we just masking the the symptoms of something that is more systematically, structurally, institutionally um, flawed, broken, damaged? So that's kind of where I, I landed this week. And I really wanted to be inspiring and positive. But actually, it, it doesn't always feel like an inspiring and positive world. So we have to answer the question as it as it is. But I don't know, Gail, whether you'd agree with me on that one. And yeah, no, I do agree. I, the, I don't think that's not inspiring and positive. I think the fact that some things need to die so that other things can be born, I, I do think that's hopeful. Mm. I think we, I know we convince ourselves that we're not a part of the natural world, but we are. We live in a world that's cyclical. We live in a world where things rise and fall. We live in a world where things are birthed and die. I don't really like cycles because it means we're going to come back to the beginning and that doesn't fill me with joy. But, <laughs> but cycles, cycles of life rather than cycles, like rather than a circle that begins and ends in the same place. Um, so, no, I don't think we can mend everything. Um, and I don't think we should. I think there are some things that we that we can mend and there are other things that we let go so that something else can so that something else can grow. And if I'm going to continue the natural metaphor, which is very strange for me, um, anyone who knows me knows that I'm birthed in concrete. But if I'm going to, I'm going to go with the natural metaphor, but as things die, they they fertilize the ground. So mm. they fall, they go in, we like we break them down, we use those nutrients to create something new, to create something that is more fitting for the environment, for the people, for the creatures around that are then going to use that for the next phase of of life until we fall again. It really feels like you're speaking into the idea of post-traumatic growth, which is the part of us which has been uh, so wounded and so damaged and pierced by our experiences uh, through the process of that trauma and the recovery of trauma can become the greatest strength that we have. But we need the process of that change to happen within us so that we can use that as our strength moving forwards. Um, yeah, not everything can be mended. Some things do need to die so that we can refertilize the earth and, and reimagine a more hopeful, brighter future. And if you want to, you can call that mending. I guess it just depends on perspective, right? Maybe that is repair. Who knows? Yeah. What about that, Sue? 
<laughs> Thank you very much. I think you just gave us a very beautiful kind of finale, finale <laughs> moment. No, no, it's so interesting, isn't it? And it makes me also think about having this daily practice, having this kind of intention towards uh, recovery, as Gail put it, and acceptance. That do you see that as a way of resisting the bigger systems? Because we certainly are in the eye of a storm at the moment, I think, in relation to the big systems. I was thinking along really similar lines. Um, I'm not thinking about or looking to repair systems at the moment. That's a whole other project. That's a project of creation, not of repair, I don't think. I think the repair project that we do in the in the meantime is for ourselves, which can be, as you're saying, so it's attending to harm done. It's also rest um, and boundary setting and all of those things and repair to those around us, to the damage that's done by those systems. So whether that's repair in communities through the work that we do, um, or whether that's repair in in um, with friends, with families, but it's repairing, repairing self and each other while we work on the bigger creation project, which is reinventing some systems of structures and reimagining something entirely different. That's great. Thank you so much, Alex and Gail. I am really sorry that I didn't tell you we needed three hours because I think I would like to carry on talking to you for much, much longer about this. And so many gorgeous things have come out of this conversation. So thanks very much and have a good day. Bye. Thank you. Bye. You you too. Bye. Take care, guys. Thanks so much for listening to the Breaks and Joins podcast. And I hope you'll enjoy listening to the other podcasts too. If you want more information about the project, you can find us on www.sumeo.co.uk and also on our Instagram page, breaks underscore and underscore joins. We'd love to hear from you. A big shout out to our funders, Arts Council England, Necessity, and the Being Human Festival. And finally, I'd like to thank my wonderful editor, Chuck Blue Lowry, and Bob Carper, who wrote the music for the podcasts. Thanks, and hope to see you soon. <laughs>